AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You are back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning, we are talking with Chris Weisinger from the Southern Bulb Company. Uh, And remember, if you miss any of these shows, you can find the archives at americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes, and you can find them on Stitchers too. And let's see, we're talking about some of the characteristics of some of these maybe these these old bulbs so chris where would be um a typical place to go uh start to start looking for some of these old bulbs should we look for somewhere maybe that is a a a ruin of a house that maybe is going to be a parking lot next week um would that be somewhere that and obviously we'd want to go in spring um to find to find the, the daffodils particularly but would that be a typical place to get started on finding bulbs uh that 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 that's one of several i i would say the number one goal is just to keep your eyes open because uh, you never know where you're going to find them it could be uh it could be just an old home that's about to change ownership. Maybe there's 15 heirs, and uh, and you know that uh, the buyer just absolutely has no care or concern. Uh, might be a roadside project that's going from two lanes to four lanes. Um, and we can talk about permission and, and how to go about that. But in the interest of the economics for all these future hunters, um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to go and point out just a tip, a trick that I use. And, and that's that when I go to a new town looking for a pretty type of bulb, the very first place I go to is the cemetery. Not not to dig, but to find, to, to find out if something's blooming. Because if I see something blooming in a cemetery, I know that the community uh, valued that plant and they planted it there among some of the graves, and that I'll find it. I'll find it if I go looking for it along other county roads. If I go to the cemetery and see nothing, uh, assuming that it hasn't been recently converted to a perpetual care cemetery with silk flowers, if it's a normal cemetery, southern cemetery or old cemetery, and I find nothing, then I don't really bulb hunt in that town because I know I'm probably not going to find anything of what I'm looking for. Um, and and then that's when you go out and you start looking for the old home site. You look for the roadside construction project. You look for the place that's about to be a parking lot, I, you know, and and. And, and that's when the really important next step comes into play. Um, and that is that every piece of land in the United States is owned by somebody. Um, and there's really no free grass. It's either owned by the county, <laughs> if it's in the, in, the, in the ditch, it's owned by the state. If it's, if it's a home site, it's owned by an individual. So it's really important to get permission. <laughs> and, and so, so where, where do you get the? Do you, you have to go for the building permits or something like that uh, to find out who owns that particular piece of land, or can you just sneak in quietly and maybe just dig them up and hope nobody notices? <laughs> well, I, I, I joke about that in my, my presentations when I talk to garden clubs and groups across the nation. I, I have a picture of a broken down fence and a broken down gate. With, with lots of daffodils just beyond it. And then I tell the audience, I said, if you, if you think that's abandoned, if you think that is equals permission, you can test that theory 
not not condoned by me, but you can test that theory by by stepping over that private property line. And I guarantee you, somebody will be there in a heartbeat to to remind you that it's private property, and they might even they might even be armed. Um, so here's how you know who owns a piece of land. Some counties in the U.S. are better than others, but the appraisal district, the taxing authority, um, that's public record who owns the land. You can visit that taxing authority, and they're just going to give you an address. Um, and sometimes you can use white pages. It's a little harder these days with all the cell phones, but you can use white pages to get the person's phone number and call them up and uh, ask for permission. And 99% of the time, if you just tell them who you are, and, and you know, I'm a master gardener, and, and what you want, I'm interested in your heirloom plants, they're special to me because X, Y, Z, not only will they give you permission 99% of the time, but they'll they'll also probably share a really neat story with you that needs to, that needs to go with the bulbs. They'll tell you the story about somebody in their family who those bulbs are very important to, and they really want to pass them along, uh, which leads into the bulb, bulb hunting etiquette. Uh, you always leave bulbs behind. You don't uh, decimate a place. Uh, so you put some of the nice, nicest, biggest, healthiest bulbs back into these clumps, and you cover, you cover them back up. You don't leave the place looking like the crater of the moon because – uh, in the summertime, when somebody's got to go out there and mow or somebody's got to walk out there, you don't want them bumping around or twisting ankles. So ask for permission, leave bowls behind, and, and fill your holes back in so the, the bowls have a chance to really grow and thrive in that situation. So three little tips for bowl punting etiquette there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was saying dur- during the break that when I was down in the Atlanta area, um, we were chasing um, somewhere where, where a daffodil or a jonquil hedge was in, in bloom. And I would imagine the same is in cemeteries. The problem had been that all these things had been mown to a, an inch of their life um, for prob- probably around, I don't know, 40 years or so. Um, so the only way that we could actually see was by looking carefully in the grass and finding those slightly wider uh, leaves. And there, there was no evidence of a bloom, and it took a few years for that. Would that be a typical problem in a cemetery uh, that, that is well-maintained these days? Yeah, it would be. Um... I don't, I don't know why we have to feel like we have to mow, you know, once a week um, during the wintertime uh, when things are otherwise dormant. Uh, but uh, the, the old-fashioned cemeteries were very much a part of the community, and if you pull up to them, they usually have a sign. You know, the community gathers on the third weekend of October and the third weekend of March or April uh, to clean the cemetery or something along those lines. And when they're on seasonal patterns like that, that's not a problem. That's where we see things that naturally grow uh, are thriving. It, it's really when you get into a cemetery that's in a major metropolitan area that's been converted to a, a 100% perpetual care that, you, you, yeah, yeah, you start to run into problems. I planted some bulbs on, on my mom's grave in Houston, and uh, sure enough, you know, they just got mowed over, mowed over, mowed over, and, and um, I haven't been back uh, this year, but I'm pretty sure they've been mowed over once again. And uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, of this day and age. I'm, I'm going to keep trying, but here's what I guarantee you, that the bulbs have more tenacity than these mowers and that eventually that mower is going to break down and the bulbs are still going to have held on and they're going to they're take back over. So there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes they are a little tricky to find. Um, but um, when, when you're looking, particularly for the, the early spring ones, um, have you found 
Um, I know the, the Georgia Garden Club did a book of uh, gardens, and they were particularly the wealthy gardens in Georgia, and this was about the 1950s or something. Um, and most of those, sadly, are now under parking lots or, or buildings, whatever. Um, do you find that the ones that uh, the people that maybe still own them or the owners of these older properties, that they're willing to talk about, about the daffodils and maybe share them still to this day uh, when they're the older varieties? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you you speaking to the willingness of a landowner to talk about and share the bulbs themselves? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I I have not seen a I have not seen a lack of desire to talk with about and or share. And I guess I was a little bit worried there. I thought, well, maybe it's just really cut on that these people would be would really get too much of that and nature of our lives, we're busy. I, I don't think these people are ever going to get tired of talking about something that brings so much joy to their life and to other people's lives. Uh, I, I just don't see the, I don't see that willingness dying away. I, I have met some, some, some people who are, are adverse to just communicating at all. Some people are, are, are bitter for one reason or another. And, you know, uh, that might not be because of the bulbs or because you're asking about bulbs. That's usually about a a circumstance that's none of, none of your none of my business, and so I just I just kind of chalk that off as a situation that, that I move on. So I mean, you occasionally get into that, but most people are willing to share, and um, and it's not our not our goal or job to be pushy. We just want to know, and we want to share in the joy too. Yeah, and and do you find that there are different varieties maybe grown in one area? than another area, maybe in the Southern Carolinas versus um, Arkansas or Georgia or, or Mississippi or something? They all grew different types, albeit that the, the age of the properties are about the same? That's a great question. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll definitely say that there's high, higher concentrations of symbols in some areas. That's not, that's not just a factor of their environment, not just a factor of their ability to grow. It's a factor of of the of the history of of the bulb itself and the people who shared it. So, like we mentioned, the the red spider lily. You'll see red spider lilies all over Newburn, North Carolina. You'll see the oxblood lily or the schoolhouse lily all over Central Texas, around the old German, Czech, and Polish communities. But you won't find large concentrations of it outside of those old communities because there's an old German plantsman from the 1880s who introduced it into those communities and they shared it amongst themselves. Um, so it's a you know, nationality thing. It's an economic thing. It's a port of introduction thing. Uh, all, all influence where we find the bulbs. We'll say, though, the only ones that would really take on a different variation, and if we want to get down to the botany of it, uh, would be the bulbs that set a lot of seeds. So your jonquils and your lint lilies, um, those will take on slight variations. Uh, that will start to differ from geography to geography, but usually it's it's moderate. It's not. I wouldn't say it's extremely severe as far as differences go. And so, so they were all kind of looking for the same type of characteristics. And did did you find maybe in some of the, the, the as, as you were go, going along that may, maybe um, as the move west went uh, went through uh, as the expansion to the west and, and across the Mississippi and all that, that people were taking their bulbs with them and there was a general march of bulbs as they went along? Oh, 100%, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, 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 I, I, don't, 
I would, I would, I long for a really good documented story of that happening. And then I keep my eyes open and I found a, a little bit tidbits here and there, but yeah, the bolts definitely marched along. They were easy to dig. They were easy to put in a bag. They uh, were easy to keep alive because they would just go dormant. They would just shut down. Um, so yeah, they, they progressed with the march of migration. One of my favorite pictures I've got in my inventory is, um, a picture of red spider lilies at the Tazine Wells House in Nacogdoches, Louisiana, which is the second oldest dwelling. I want to make sure I get this right. Second old, oldest dwelling, like living living quarters, west of the Mississippi River, and uh, that's covered in red spider lilies. Now, they wouldn't have come with the original settlers because the red spider lilies weren't there yet, but I don't think it took long for those red spider lilies once they crossed the Mississippi to make their way into these old, into that old housing structure so we see we see that evidence yeah yeah and I, and I think it's great when things like that happen and you can track from from one generation to the next as you say bulbs are are so easy to to pick up if you remember them um but you know we need to take another quick commercial break here but i want to remind you you're listening to the master gardener hour and we'll be back with more about heirloom bulbs with chris weisinger and we'll maybe talk about some of the different things other than bulbs as well um and we will be right back quick stakes that's Q-U-I-K Steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that throat itching and tickling, nasal itching, eye itching, skin itching, eczema, and hives are all signs of allergy? A person suffering from allergy does not always have sneezing and a runny nose. If you have noticed that these symptoms are always present year-round, you may have allergies to what you are eating. Foods such as wheat, eggs, dairy products, and corn are present in most foods. Corn in particular is present in most processed foods and soft drinks in the form of high-fructose corn syrup. Completely removing these foods from your diet for at least two months can in some cases stop the symptoms. Keeping a food diary or getting tested for food allergies is the fastest way to find out what foods are causing your symptoms. If you think you have a food allergy, it is important to see a doctor who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of allergy. By rotating the food into the diet once every two weeks, allergies can be controlled and you can still eat the food. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour, and I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning we're talking heirloom daffodils with Chris Weisinger from Southern Bulb Company. And we've talked about some of the bulbs. And during the break, uh, Chris, we were talking a little about, um, you know, I, I, I know there was a letter to a son who was in, in the Civil War um, down, down there, and the, the, the mother was saying... I love you being in the war. My support is for, for you. I hope you're keeping safe. And by, by the way, could you bring back this bulb for me when you come back? So, <laughs> so they, were, they were thinking of their garden all the time. Um, yeah. and, and, and you were talking about in the break the, tig- the march of the tiger lily, so to speak. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, my, my, I, I've got a book that's full of eight, uh, short stories, American short stories, and it's from the mid-1800s. And uh, these are authors that were writing in the mid 1800s, and I was reading some stories out loud with my wife uh, last week, and our little our little one, Josephine, she's two months old now. Um, and anyways, the story uh, was talking about a traveler who decided to take an offbeat um, path to get to his destination, not the modern commercial route of the 1850s, but the the offbeaten path that followed a ridge line, and he described that path as the kind of path where you still saw tiger lilies that bloomed and marked the old home sites of the 1700s and 1600s. And I thought, wow, they were doing the exact same thing that that we're doing 200 years later. They were marking their old home sites with fire bulbs. So I guess what we're doing is nothing new, and and, uh, it really is a connection to our past in so many ways. Yes, and and I think it's it's great when you find um, you know, these these stories. I know Alice Morse Earl is one of my favourite uh, authors from the colonial ages, and and she was talking about lilacs, and she said that 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 she was traipsing over some field and found a homestead that was obviously hadn't survived um, what the weather over the last sort of decade or so but the lilacs were there and they were blooming quite happily um, so the, the, the lilacs and the daffodils are surviving uh, the buildings from what I could gather yeah yeah it's, inc- it's incredible it's incredible uh, yeah you know we live busy lives Kate we really do I mean We've all got these worries and stresses and, and, and jobs and finances and credit cards, whatever, whatever it is, debt, uh, uh, that, that, that sets us back. Yet um, there's a peaceful story and there's a quiet story that just reminds us that everything's happening the way it's supposed to. And we see that evidence in the beautiful flowering trees and flower bulbs all around us. And, and did you find um, may, maybe that some of these bulbs went out of favor, you know, when everybody was growing them, um, maybe, I mean, the, the ditch lily or the tiger lily, uh, um, you know, it tends, tends to be everybody's kind of looking down on it now. Um, were, were, there, were there some things that got so, so common that the, particularly the wealthy or the upper classes just said, oh, we don't need to grow that anymore? Um, so there were changes uh, in fashion. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's just let's just talk about today. I mean, in the South, canna, cannas, canna lilies just have this terrible reputation right now. I mean, you know, some sun disease, but uh, the disease is a, a real issue. But there, I think the deeper issues that people see them as common and they're tired of them. I love canna lilies, and I saw uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Longwood Gardens, Valley Forge, using. Um, Near Valley Forge, using canna lilies beautifully in their conservatory that uh, that uh, was built in the 1800s. Anyway, in a really formal garden, 
and this, why why write why write a plan off the books and and because it's common and that happens all the time and it definitely happened in the past. Um, I I think spider lilies reached to that point at some point because they're everywhere and I don't I don't think it was until recently that they really hit people's eyes again and, and have become valuable as a beautiful fall blooming bulb. So uh, yeah, that definitely happens and. That's yeah, where a guy like me kind of comes along and says, well, it was forgotten. I think this is valuable. Sure enough, most of the modern gardening world sees it as valuable. And so let's go ahead and glean off the excesses of the past where people just treated it like um, treated, it, treated it like dirt, I guess, planted it in the dirt, a little pun there, and then uh, bring it back to the forefront because all these plants are exciting. They're all really thrilling. So. Yeah, and, and did the daffodils as a, a group maybe suffer from, um, particularly with the rose, for instance, it went, went from being a, a lovely shrub rose to something that, that was supposed to have a long stem made for um, arrangements or something like that and the competitions and you got the longer ones and it totally lost the charm um, and, and were difficult to do. Did the same thing happen to daffodils, that they, they were kind of developed and crossbred to have the perfect uh, stiff stem and a perfect white or, or yellow uh, trumpet? Yeah, yeah, that's, that has definitely happened, Kate. So I, the way I, the way I struck my wife, my wife's a florist. I took floral design in college. Uh, I joked about being called different names. Uh, I was called Flower in college. I was uh, I was in the Corps Cadets of Texas A&M, which is a, like a military school, and everybody called me Flower because I, I would walk back with bouquets of these long-stemmed roses, and I'd be in uniform, and... Uh, and by the way, it's the New York Times that called me the bulb hunter uh, in an article in 2005. That's, that's how the name stuck. Uh, they, they went on a bulb hunting expedition with me, just so you know. Anyways, my love of floral design has always been there. My wife is a florist. All of a sudden, I'm confronted with almost two different forms of beauty. Uh, one is a beauty that belongs in floral arrangements, and one is a beauty that's in gardens and old home sites. And, and I would say the trend since post-World War II, it's definitely been the trend towards things that were a florist-quality beauty. And for a while, I think the idea or concept of beautiful for these garden varieties suffered. I think it diminished. I think we see that coming back. And I think it's primarily because uh, these old heirloom bulbs uh, are still beautiful, but they have an added bonus in that they combine beauty and functionality uh, where you get both of those combined, and that's what you really want, a sustainable, beautiful, functional uh, plant. So are, are we going to scorn these other ones that have been bred for the florist shop? By no means, because they have a purpose, and they've been bred for that purpose, and they're beautiful, and they make people's lives happier. But you've got to retrain your brain to just, just remember that um, those are almost two different types of bulbs altogether. And, and, and the modern ones typically don't have that lovely scent of the older bulbs either. I, I would say that's true. I would say a lot of times in the bulbs that, that scent has been uh, gone. I mean, it almost takes on a weird scent. Like, like the, there's the modern hyacinths, which have this very strong scent, and it's still beautiful, but you go back to the old French-Roman hyacinths that you find growing wild, and the scent is almost not as dark, it's not as sharp, it's not as overpowering, it's just more of a sweet, spicy fragrance versus maybe something that some folks might not want in their house, like the strong paper white blooms. Then. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 
scent has definitely been overshadowed for uh, appearance. And as I say, that, that, that was a, a surprise to me that some of the older ones were, were scented. Um, and, and the stories behind a lot of these bulbs, um, do you find that that helps maybe to, to sell the bulbs when you talk about the, the old site on, in the, the catalogs and things like that? It, it does. It, it really does help sell a bulb. Um, I, would, I would say the modern consumer is still very much price-driven, um, but they... They, they appreciate it when you can mix the price with the history because and, and, and at that point they'll trend towards the historical they'll trend towards the story um, I would say there's a, there's a love for it though that is that is deep uh, just with, with consideration to the, some of the modern price points but yes the story does help sell the bulbs um, because they want the same story I mean they want more than just a pretty bloom. They want to be able to pass something on to their grandchildren. And I tell folks all the time, you know, it, yes, buy on the buy on the stories of the bulbs, but also buy the bulbs to create your own stories. And this is the best way to pass pass on your your stories to your grandchildren, to pass on a, a legacy to your grandchildren. That's the that's the plant a lot of bulbs. And and it it, it brings, I think, a character to a bulb as well. I mean, if you, if you knew that it was in, for instance, uh, may, maybe a cemetery or some, something, because cemeteries were treated very differently uh, by the Victorians, for instance, than, than we think of them now. Um, but it, it, so it gives a story behind them that you can then retell to whether you give it as a gift to, to a niece or as a wedding or something like that. You're right. You're absolutely right. And you know, the Victorians celebrated the cemeteries and that picnics out there. You're right. Um, and so following that example, a lot of my friends who, who've been married or uh, got married in the last five years, I'll give them flower bulbs that bloom on the day of their wedding. Um, so every time they bloom, they, they remember their wedding day. And it's really, a, it's really a special thing to do for them. And all bulbs have these characters. You're right. And it really helps you understand the bulb, too, when you understand the, the history of it and, and why it was planted and where it came from. It really helps you care for it. Uh, in environmental ways too. And, and did, did the bulbs occur maybe in the north as well as the south um, when they when they first ar- arrived in the country, um, or was it because the south, the northern ones didn't grow in the south that they had to um, adapt and, and find their own down there? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time in the northern gardens, but I, I do know that they brought their bulbs with them as well, and that their old old gardens have. A lot of bulbs. Now, of course, we find a lot of the bulbs in Monticello uh, that Thomas Jefferson grew. They do very well for us in the South, and Monticello is practically the South. Um, you could almost say it is the South in some ways, and so we have a lot of similar gardening uh, situations there. Uh, you go, you know, you go north of that in the colder climates. Uh, a great example of a bulb that returns every year is the peony. You know, we don't really have peonies here in the South. We do, but we don't have them like they do in the old areas up there. So they have their own examples of bulbs that have come back. I'm just not as familiar with those. So I don't want to make any blanket claims about needs for adaption or adaptation. Um, but uh, but there's, I'm sure there's a little bit of that. But really, they've got their own stories and their own bulbs up there. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I, I certainly think, you know, this, this interest in 
in heirlooms, I think has been almost across the board. It, it's happened in the vegetables and it's happened in the um, the apple industry um, or the fruit industry in general. It happened. I, I think there's probably a wave of everybody just being more interested in the things that have been lost. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I mean, was it in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that there was a report about um, uh, a flavor flavoring companies? Uh, it was a $4 billion industry where they, they help provide flavors. for. Com- the, uh, there's a one company boasting of a 1,000 different flavors of banana. And, you know, it's, a, uh, it's been described as a, a tyranny of choices. And sometimes we wonder, boy, I want to put all these different choices, all these different colors, all these different new hybrids aside, and just tell me what what has worked and what will work for me and what's traditional. I I just want the real thing. I don't I don't want to be experimented upon. I don't want to go for neon <laughs> colors. I just want something that is a connection to my past that'll bloom pretty, that has a nice fragrance that I can make sure my grandkids will have in my garden and that I can work into that I can work in with some other perennials and have a really pretty garden. And have a history to it. I, I think that's what we see the consumer almost rejecting the tyranny of choices across the board and trying to find the, what what is pure, what is real, what's, what we might call an heirloom, what's been around. And uh, there's definitely a heart movement towards these selections. Yeah. But anyway, we need to take our final commercial break here. Um, but come back and listen more to more about the Southern Bulb Company, um, and we'll find out how to order some of these great bulbs with Chris Weisinger. We will be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source the people who work every day to provide it. Feedstuffsfoodlink.com, connecting farm to fork. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about southern bulbs, particularly daffodils, with Chris Weisinger from the Southern Bulb Company. Um, and, Chris, you were able to take, take obviously, your love of, of these uh, daffodils, particularly, and the older plants, into a business. How old is the business now? Well, I uh, started in the mm, fall of 2013, right before I graduated. So, I mean, fall of 2003. Excuse me. So we're going on 11 years. It's hard to believe. Yeah, I gave all my 20s to it. Uh, and now I'm, now I'm in my young 30s. So 
um, it's about it's about that old. <laughs> Believe yeah. it or not, <laughs> Southern Bulb, Southern yeah. Bulb Company. I think something that helped me. I, I started the company at a unique time when yeah, I started SouthernBulbs.com, and it was really really at the at the forefront of people offering products online, and flower bulbs really sold well online. So when you know when they ran the New York Times article in 2005 and told the world you could order heirloom southern bulbs at southernbulbs.com online, it was really uh, an explosion. It was really a neat moment, and uh, and so we continued that on. Of course, we've had to we've had to separate the the, the bulb hunting adventures uh, into a blog uh, just to help sort of keep it separate. So the the bulbhunter.com blog really follows the bulb hunting adventures. And we cross-market it and send folks to southernbulbs.com to actually buy the bulbs. Um, it, you know, it went from blogging that people enjoyed a long narrative story with little pictures to them wanting all pictures to now now most folks enjoy little microblogs or posts on Facebook. So a lot of folks just go ahead and like us on Facebook at the Bulb Hunter. And uh, that's one of the ways that we stay in touch with our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been pretty swamped this fall. Uh I, because I, I speak so much, I speak all over the nation, uh, that a lot of my pictures, I, I didn't get quite, I got a few pictures of little Josephine up because she was born two months ago, right, in the midst of all our busy shipping. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll get a few more bull hunting pictures up. We we planted uh, well over 20,000 bulls in Fort Worth Ooh, wow. over the weekend, and so I've got some pictures from that. I, I need to get all these things uh, online and so that's where we send folks to, to follow the story, thebullhunter.com, or uh, they ask me to come speak, or they buy my book, which is The Bull Hunter. Uh, it just kind of gets a little crazy what you do to make a, make a living. Uh, <laughs> Bull Hunter lunch, lunch pails, you know, Bull Hunter t-shirt. We haven't done that yet. Um, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, most folks want the bulbs, though, so they go to southernbulbs.com. Yeah. And, and although though we've talked primarily about the older heirloom daffodils, um, your site actually sells other things than daffodils, too. Um, so, so how many different uh, varieties of, of plants? I mean, you, do you sell the, um, the older gladiolus and things like that, too? I do. Uh, I had a devastating crop failure with my old-fashioned Byzantine gladiolus. Because the voles, uh, like what we call them pocket gophers, often out in East Texas, I, I didn't realize they find them particularly delicious. So, you know, we farm on about 22 acres of sandy loam soil in East Texas. Um, we've got just a, a little full barn, which we ship out of. Um, the, uh, and that's the, the bulk of the business right there. Um, and we, I don't, you asked about number of species selections. I guess you could say it's around 30. We, we, we sell New World bulbs, too, like from the equator and from Central America, and that's a, that's a portion of our business, uh, which we grow. We, have, we, we can grow year-round in Texas out, outdoors, like built macrinums or rain lilies, other amaryllis, old-fashioned amaryllis. I'd say we're right around 30 to 40 selections of uh, types of bulbs. And although the bulbs are specifically for, for the, the southern um, side, um, do they also grow... Well, can they be grown in the north as well? Some yes, some no. I, I, a lot of a lot of northerners, and I even saw this in Manhattan, New York City. They were growing a, a crinum uh, as a centerpiece in a large, uh, a large display. And, and, and whoever designed that knew that that wasn't a, a perennial selection; that was just a temporary selection. Because a lot of the um, 
the crinums or the amaryllids, they're not going to survive your winters up there. But if you get into some of the narcissus, uh, some of the species tulips, um, the hyacinths, uh, even even uh, the old-fashioned Byzantine gladiolus, which they call the hardy glad up there, a lot of those will do well uh, or okay up north of the Mason-Dixon line. So you'd be okay with them up there. And, and the microclimates, I guess, of the, being close to the ocean and things like that. Um, but if, if somebody maybe, um, they, they got an old photograph maybe of their, their property sort of in the mid-50s or the early, early uh, 1900s, and there were daffodils there, is it possible to tell um, what type of daffodils they were if you knew where the, the location was and, and where the date of the photograph was, if somebody sort of posted it to you? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Generally, it's not a, not a problem to get things identified. I mean, Kate, I'm stumped just like anybody else is stumped um, occasionally. But if you end up posting to uh, Bull Hunter uh, on Facebook, that's a great way to get our attention and, and share it with the public, or or submit it to, to our email info at southernbulbs dot com and give us permission to post it on the blog, and we'll we'll repost it on the blog with your story and try to help identify some of the flower bulbs. And, and so you'd have to know roughly when it when it bloomed, whether it was an early bloomer or a later bloomer as well? That definitely helps. The context clues help. But uh, a picture of the bulb itself is, is most important. Okay. Um, and, and your book, The Bulb Hun- Hunter, you can get, can you get that through the website or do we have to go through Amazon or, and uh, local bookstores for that? Uh, you can do Barnes & Noble if you want to walk into a brick-and-mortar store. You can do Amazon.com, uh, or you can buy it online through us. So you'll, you might get it cheaper at Amazon, but if you buy it through us, I sign, I sign every copy. And uh, if people ask for a note, we'll sign a note if it's a birthday, if it's whatever. Um, we'll, we'll sign it and date it and get it sent off. And so a lot of folks like that added benefit of coming to southernbulbs.com to order their books. And, and you mentioned your blog where, where you, you sort of could do your, um, your, your travels. Do you have a newsletter as well to kind of keep people up to date with new offerings and things like that? Well, that's the most important way to stay up to date on new offerings. We have a, we, we have a significant number of people on our newsletter list. Uh, and a lot of them, uh, uh, I feel like they watch that newsletter list closer than they watch their stock. Or their or or real estate sometimes because the second a new product hits that mass audience and that's how we release through the newsletter, um, boy they they jump on it and go online and, and, and usually sell it out in a few hours. So I try to make sure I've got enough. So I don't I don't enjoy making people mad. I don't enjoy the angry emails. So uh, if you if you want a new product, uh, sign up on the newsletter. You can do that through uh, there's a little section on southernmolds.com or there's a section on com on the on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, you can enter your email address, and that'll get you signed up. And, and so there, there is a contact uh, form actually on the, the website, is that right, to contact you? That's correct. Yeah. There's even a, there's even a contact form on the uh, Facebook page. So okay. It's everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and if somebody wanted you to do um, a talk for their garden group or something, um, that, that would be a good way to contact you as well? Yeah, email us to info at southernmolds.com. There's an honorarium. There's a, there's a travel reimbursement. Uh, uh, you know, it goes up a little bit each year, uh, especially with a little one. Uh, it gets harder and harder to, to, to travel. But that's, that's still an option, uh, and we still like to spread the word. Um, but, uh, you know, I find myself uh, needed on the farm a lot these days, uh, needed in the warehouse, uh, 
needed at home, most importantly. So uh, traveling gets a little harder uh, as, as I moved on. It was really easy when I was in my mid-20s. Um, but <laughs> let, let, let us know. We'll see if we got the weekend available or the weekday available. Um, and um, and we'll, we can talk, talk, talk it from there. And, and so most of these talks that you do would be on, on the, the heirlooms. Do you post um, a, a list of the different talks you do on the, on the website and where you're going to be presenting if they're open to the public? Um, we'll, we'll do an announcement if we're coming to, to a town. We'll do a little blast on our newsletter or a Facebook blast, letting them know what we're talking about, where we're talking, when we're talking, and if it's open to the public or not. You know, uh, all my talks revolve around heirloom bulbs. Some people want a little heavier emphasis on uh, the the architecture uh, of the old homes that I'll find. Some people want more of a socioeconomic, uh, historical look. Some folks want the story um, of of starting the Southern Bulb Company, and they really want me to be heavy in the in the botany of the bulb. And I can go, I can take it any angle it really needs to be taken. And and you mentioned the Facebook page. Um, can that be linked directly from the website, or is it better to go to? And it, that would be the Southern Bulb com- Company on uh, on Facebook and things like that. Um, the best way to get to the the Bulb Hunter is really there is Southern Bulbs on Facebook. A lot of folks are on the the the, the Bulb Hunter part of Facebook. Oh. I would just go to Facebook and search for the Bulb Hunter page through through their internal searching feature and take it away from there. And, and would that be the same on Twitter or Google Plus or, and any of those other social media things? I struggle with Twitter and Google <laughs> Plus. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I enjoy being on my tractor more than I enjoy <laughs> being on my phone. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a wonder, wonderful life that you that you lead. You know, being able to tra- traipse over to different places and uh, and you know, we've got about a, a minute or so left. If some if somebody was maybe um, restoring an old property, again, they, they'd be able to contact you for appropriate daffodils that might might have been there, even if they don't have the evidence of them. Yeah, if you if you need a historical time frame, you know, we can help sort of find bulbs with the bill. There's some other companies that could also help with that too, and we're we're happy to share all the other companies' contact info if we don't have some. There's about three of us out there, and uh, most of our relationships are are pretty darn good, and we like the cross cross market. So call us; we can help send you to the right place if we don't have it. Yeah. Oh, and uh, it's eight 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 bulb hunt. <laughs> as easy as that is, but eight 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 bulb hunt will get you to, to us on the phone. Yeah, and, and I would imagine that you enjoy chatting with, with, uh, with people that are restoring different properties and things, things like that because that, that puts the whole context of the bulbs in, whether you want something pre-1900 or, or between 1900 and 1925, that, that wonderful era of expansion and things like that. Indeed. Yeah, um, and and so so the book is the Bulb Hunter that that's on um, on Amazon and if you want a signed copy, we get it from your 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 company Southern Bulb Southern, Southern Bulb. Bulb. Yeah, um, and the the company website is Southern Bulb Company. Is that right? Uh, actually, just southernbulbs.com. 
Okay. Or just Google it. Uh, and that's where we get all, all these wonderful bulbs. And it's a beautiful website. Um, so th- thank you, Chris. It's, it's been a great talk. I've really enjoyed it. I love heirlooms of all descriptions. So this has been a real pleasure for me. Um, Likewise. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, I, that is the show for today, folks. Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We will be back with another show next week. Have a good gardening week and join me back here next Saturday. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life. And I am an active Master Gardener. My name is Kate Copsey, and I have kept my certification for over a decade through six different states. Uh, You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. If you have any questions, about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, The Master Gardener Hour, and maybe we can answer the question on air. This morning, we are going to be talking heirloom daffodils and other bulbs with Chris Weisinger from Southern Bulb Company. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Kate. 
Yes, and I first came across your name and business when I a couple of years ago when I was flying, and it's rare that uh, those in-flight magazines have gardeners in there. But it was a great story uh, that told about you wandering over the south, researching and saving daffodils, um, you know, that our grandparents uh, grew. So tell me how you came about to be interested in old daffodils and how you came to be known as the bulb hunter in the south well those are great questions because i've not always been called the bulb hunter um uh i've been called a lot of things uh uh but the bulb hunter (laughs) name came later later in life um my interest in fly bulbs though goes back to a, a childhood experience and i think a lot of our love for gardening if we all were honest with ourselves would, would harken back to some experience as a, as a child. Mine, I was 12, 12 years old, and I was in the fall, um, and we went to the garden center like we often did on the weekends, and in the um, corner of the garden center were these cardboard boxes with these little brown things that look like rocks inside of them, but they're <laughs> beautiful pictures on the outside. Um, convinced my mom to let me buy a few of these rocks. I planted them in the ground, forgot about them, and almost magically overnight, seemed like in the spring beautiful red tulips popped up and i fell in love with the magic of flower bulbs from that from that moment and i you know i think that's a wonderful way to to find bulbs you know when they're in the store and you see all those colors there um but that i guess um the bulbs that you specialize in are more the ones that our grandparents grew uh, kind of the the heirloom Bulbs. So what is different or fascinating to you about those, maybe versus the ones that the box stores now sell, sort of buy, buy a pack of a hundred type of thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the childhood story um, actually continued because uh, I was so in love with that red tulip that I looked forward to the next year's bloom. And um, next year came, and the foliage came up, but there was no bloom. And I thought, well, hmm. I I must have done something wrong here. And I thought, I, I'll try to change a few things, and I'm looking forward to next year's bloom. Well, next year came, so now that we're on year three, uh, the, not even the foliage came up. And I, I started to dig in the dirt like all good horticulturalists would and uh, found the rotted remains of what used to have been my, my little flower bulb. I was horticulturally scarred from a young age. And I thought, surely, uh, surely there's, there's there's a better bulb out there. There's a bulb that would come back year after year, a perennial bulb. And so I took that question with me to uh, my horticulture degree uh, program through Texas A&M University, and I wrote a business plan senior year to start a nursery that focused on bulbs that would come back every year in, uh, in, in, in particular climates. Now, our particular climate was something that was hot and humid and, and harsh uh, from those angles. So I wanted bulbs that came back and fit the bill for those climates. And somebody said, well, you got to go, you need to go look at where um, some of these old home sites were out in the country. Uh, and I've, I've seen some old bulbs out there. And I started driving around the old country roads. And sure enough, lines of daffodils marked the old home sites. The houses were gone. The trees were gone. But it got even more exciting because it wasn't just daffodils. It was heirloom hyacinths, heirloom gladiolus, heirloom rain lilies. Uh, and if I was lucky enough, maybe even an heirloom red tulip. And uh, thus began my exciting adventures as I discovered uh, an heirloom bulb 
in old home sites, probably something that was blooming every single month of the year. There's never a month where I can't find something. Oh, wow. And and I would imagine it's more in the south. Um, you know, I remember when we were down there, you know, they, they were talking about uh, perennial tulips. Now, coming from the north and from Europe, you know, my, my first thought was, I thought they were perennial, <laughs> so, so it's kind of, I, I guess it's the, the chill factor which was uh, killing most of your bulbs, would that be right, or the lack of chill, shall we say? Well, that, that is a common belief, but here's what really gets most of our tulips in the south. They, they don't, a lot of the Darwin hybrids don't bloom because of the chill, and eventually they'll, they'll die out, but what really kills the bulbs in the south is the wet, humid summers in, in soils that retain a lot of moisture down here, and, and they, a lot of them rot out. Um, it, we have uh, discovered a tulip that, that's been known for a while, um, but we've really found some neat sites and stands of it. Um, a tulip that has come back in central Texas for the last 100 years, and the trick to its survival and its ability to bloom every year, uh, it survives because it dries out completely in our prairie blackland soils. And, and, yes, it, to get a good bloom, it, it also has a low chill requirement. And, and as you know, uh, a chill hour is, we define typically as the, the number of hours when the temperature is between 32 and 45 degrees. But, yeah, usually our tulips rot on us. It's not so much a chill issue, believe it or not. And and so when you're down, down there kind of, I guess, looking at all these bulbs, when did they start being used, I guess, in – um, gar- gardens in general, um, and was it just the wealthy people that were maybe put in little groups of them here or there, or did it kind of filter down to, shall we say, the the, the middle class and and everybody using them? That's a that's a great point. Uh, you could write a book on the socioeconomic uh, factors that influence um, plants and the areas where we find the plants. Uh, I would say, uh, well, I would say it just depends. We find some bulbs that came over in West Africa uh, with the slave trade in the mid-1800s, and we find those dotted across uh, Louisiana in certain places. We find some bulbs that uh, entered in through uh, upper class in the 1850s through the Carolinas, like the red spotted lilies when Commodore Perry opened the port of Japan and sent some bulls back to the Carolinas. You know, the the, the tulip I, I just mentioned uh, was definitely a middle-class um, family. Uh, I, the, they told me the story of their great-grandmother, who was a part of a, uh, a little plant trading group, and this little town was on, along a railroad, and they would deliver her bulbs via um, the post via the rail, um, and that's where she got her bulbs. So, you know, it's really all over the board, and I like to tell people that, the bulbs tell stories. Even after people have forgotten, even after the architecture has forgotten, these bulbs are still telling us amazing stories. And I think um, I think that's worth exploring further. I think you asked a really provocative question, and, and perhaps one day we can look at it in further depth. So, so most of these daffodils then, I guess, were, were kind of um, split down and went from one generation to the next, like true heirloom plants. Um, they didn't kind of self-seed or anything like that along the way. Uh, right. Most of these came are old-world bulbs. They came from uh, being passed down from generation to generation, whoever the, some of the first immigrants were. 
Um, yeah, we do, we do find some native bulbs that have, um, seeded. Um, we found some of these heirloom bulbs have, have hybridized with some of the, uh, native bulbs and, uh, but that's rare. We don't see a whole lot of that. So we still have a lot of good native bulbs, uh, all across the U.S. But most of these, these other heirloom bulbs are, are an old world bulb that have, uh, been passed on from generation to generation. And I, I know when I was working down in the south, um, they, they were sometimes called, um, there was one gen- gentleman, I think, at um, the end of the 19th century said uh, the jonquil hedge is in full bloom. Were daffodils and jonquils basically the same thing? I know there are subtle differences now, but uh, were they basically um, a, a word that went between the, the both of them? Ah. I'm not as well read on that to to give a, a very qualified answer, but everywhere that I have read, I've generally seen the jonquils referred to as the true Narcissus jonquilla, uh, which is a smaller uh, bloom about the size of a dime, but they make a lot of blooms and they sell seed. And I've typically seen the daffodil, um, even throughout most of the literature, be referred to as the the traditional Narcissus pseudonarcissus, which is the the one with the large, the one with the large, um, the large trumpet-shaped bloom. And and so I, I guess um, you know when when they referred to these these things, um, I know a lot um, were in the older homesteads. Um, were these still maintained over the years? Um, through from one, I guess, as the house got older, or um, was it the new owners that, or um, that, that took them o- over, or were they literally dug up and taken away each time when people moved? Uh, that is a story that's unique to each family, um, honestly. It, it, as of late, I would say people have got heirloom bulbs and they're their yard is because they, they bought the house and had no idea that they were there. I mean, people in our generation typically don't really care <laughs> <laughs> as much as they should. I mean, that's kind of our goal. I see that as a major goal of my life. Just uh, uh, We're surrounded by beautiful things. A lot of people that have gone before us have planted. Just we need to open our eyes. Um, yeah, I would say as people, though, have, inherit these places, they fall in love with the bulbs, and, and those people take them up, dig them up, share them, and uh, I think that was much more common where they would dig them up and share them. The the ones that we see in mass um, right now are, are typically uh, on old home sites, are typically old home sites where they tore down the house and they turned it into a hay meadow where they could still get a lot of good uh, winter sunshine in there. Um, and where they just just by natural economics, they weren't cutting the hay in the, in the wintertime, and, and these bulbs would grow in the wintertime, which was much more conducive to them uh, being able to thrive. Um, and then even when these farmers plowed up these fields in the summertime, well, that, that's when the, that's actually ideal to sort of split open a, a, a narcissist and propagate it by, by cutting it up, almost like you would a starfish or something like that. So uh, just the natural economics have allowed some of these bulbs to really thrive just on their own, even though they were just left in these old home sites. And, you know, and I, I think probably we better take our, our first commercial break here, Chris. Um, but I want to tell everyone you're listening to the Master Gardener Hour, and we'll be talking more about finding old bulbs and where to look for them. Uh, the Master Gardener Hour will be back in just a minute. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 